So uh, first and foremost, thank you so much to Philip and Judy for having me and um, everything that I say, really all our thoughts should be because that's why we're here. I want to take the opportunity to talk a little bit about the relationship between Yom Ha'atzmut and Yom Yerushalayim and uh, play a little bit. It's an exploration I'd like you to join me in because I have a feeling that we face a number of challenges as a people. I was going to end on the challenge, but sitting here looking out on this view, I can't help but begin there. Because, you know, thinking about your, your mother's story, thinking about my family, I'm sure that many of us sitting here today, in fact, probably all of us, had ancestors that at one point in the last couple hundred years would have crawled on hands and knees until they were bruised and bleeding just to see what we're able to look at today. And, I mean, we're not even in Yerushalayim. We could go there if we like. And that's wonderful, it's beautiful, but it also bears some consideration because for a significant portion of Am Yisrael, here in the country and certainly worldwide, Yom Yerushalayim is at best nothing. At best. And unfortunately, increasingly a source of controversy. And so what I want to do tonight is think a little bit together about what is the relationship between Yom Ha'atzmut and Yom Yerushalayim, and what can we learn from them to sort of help us launch into this educational mission. I see it as a potentially redemptive mission, in fact, because 2,000 years of longing, and Nebuch, most people don't even mark the day we return. And there's a big question of why. So in order to do that, what I want to do is um, give you guys a frame in which uh, we'll be able to look at these days, share a little language, and then we'll see what time is left to actually poke away at the days themselves. So you guys ready to begin? Um, and I'm not opposed to questions. You can throw out things. You can throw things at me. I'm quite quick to dodge. But um, I will, however, make the commitment that at 9 o'clock we're davering Mariv, correct? Great. Uh, that is not my problem that you ran over. Uh, my problem is when I end. Um, so, so first things first, I want to offer you a frame that actually was given to be my, my teacher, uh, Rabbi Dr. Yosef Leibowitz. Anybody happen to know? Rabbi Leibowitz out there? No? He's a, he, he was around, is around, but he was quite a teacher for a long time. And he taught me that there's a very important frame in which to understand sacred time in the Torah. It starts with Shabbat, of course. And Shabbat, we talk about the holiness of Shabbat, is, is a kaima. It just exists. It's part of the fabric of creation. Before there's even any expression in what we think of as historic time, Shabbat's there, and it's on its own. Then we get what we call the Moadim. Right? We're coming up on Shavuot. We just left. Pesach, these are the elements of holiness in time which are top-down, so to speak. God said in the Torah, do this. They might be tied to historic events, each in their own, Yitziat Mitzrayim, Sinai, etc. But the key is, is that it was a divine command, and the sanctification of the time in the calendar was given over to Israel. And then we go further into the calendar, and we look at things like Purim and Hanukkah. And what are those? Now, those are historic events, right? The Maccabees, you know contextually related here, um, fight their battle in history. And if you know a little bit about that history, it doesn't necessarily end so well, depending on where you put the story. But along come the sages, and they extract from those specific historic events the eternal, right? The emergence of light from darkness, the struggle for freedom, all the things that we can relate to so that long after the Maccabees are gone and we've whitewashed the history of their kingdom to fit the essential story. I say whitewashed, but I say that with, you know, tongue-in-cheek. It's not a whitewashing. In the same way as the memories of the ones that we love are kind of like, you know, the stones that get washed by a river, all the rough edges disappear. My, my father passed away 20 years ago, and my mother never fails to remind me on his yard site that he wasn't a saint. 
right? But nonetheless, that's the way the mind works, and I think it's how it ought to work. And so our sages were able to extract Hanukkah and Purim, and in its own way, uh, Tisha B'Av, the essential. And so in each of them, if you think about those stories, we receive their sort of divine gushpanka. Like, yeah, you did it right. The Hanukkah candles, the Purim story, fine. Here's my question for you. What about Yom Ha'atzmaut and Yom Yerushalayim? What is the essential that needs to be extracted from the historical which will guarantee that our children's children's children, two, it's been 2,500 years since the Maccabees, will still be celebrating. And of course, the flip side is, if we fail to do that, well then, you're going to look at a glorified barbecue for Yom HaTzmut, and I don't really know what for Yom Yerushalayim. So it is worthwhile to consider where that task lays, and I would, I think, it's important to point out that this comes in a whole package of what you know, are known as Moadei Iyar, here, right, the, the Chagaya Le'um, these national holidays, which so powerfully have fallen out in the midst of the counting of the Omer. And I do also want to mention the pure souls that passed on Lagba Omer and anything that we say should also add to their elevation and, frankly, they to ours. So let's start with some definition. Yom Atzma'ut. The word Atzma'ut is very powerful. You know, in this week's Parsha, the, the word which I personally, if you had asked me for a biblical term for independence, would have chosen would have been Komamut. Right? Atzma'ut is not a biblical term. Etzem means what? Bone or, or essence. What's atzma'ut? Well, careful, that was a huge, you know, little tautology. It's self-actualization I'll offer to you. Right? Etzem, atzma'ut, is bringing out the essence of something. And you know, the quest for self-actualization is an ongoing process of building and cultivating the capacity to receive and express life. That's what it is. It's the body. It's if, you're, if you're an organizational person, it's your institution. If you're a family person, it's your family. It's the building which allows life to take form. Now, keep in mind, of course, anything which has form in the world always faces two problems. I call them the problems of embodiment. Number one, I'll tell you a quick story. I have, uh, my kids are, are from 7 to 17 in the midst of all those wonderful teenage struggles. And I will never forget that my 11-year-old daughter, when she first began to push against the rules of tznut, of modesty in our house. She said to me very simply, and if you haven't figured this out, you probably all know this, that if you have to argue about these things, you've already lost as a parent. I didn't know it at the time, unfortunately. It took me five years. But meantime, she says to me, Abba, really? Oh, I think I just ripped my shirt. She says, this matters? Really? Can you see the elbow? This? Like, really? Come on, this? Because yeah, I told her, elbows and knees, leave me alone. Fantastic. Do you hear the brilliance of it? Because on one hand, she's touching the absurdity of all rules. She's right. Come on, really? You know, it's always an edge, right? I pay taxes here, but I don't pay taxes there. So I said to her, you're not going to understand probably at 11 what I'm going to tell you, but you need to know this. There's no such thing as a value if it doesn't have a line. Things which are manifest in the world have a line. If you believe modesty is a value, we could get into an argument. I go, who gets to make the lines and the rules? Fine. That means you're going to be able to point at something and say, this is and that is not. And that is the nature of life. If you have a value and it's not manifest with a definable line, then it's not really a value. It's just some idea that you hold. And the problem with that is you'll always get somebody who's going to become come and say, really? Really? That's absurd. That's the number one problem. There's always a little bit of absurdity to taking something as grand as a value, a people, a national vision, and making it into a state. The other problem, of course, is something you all know, which is life is very messy. Anybody who has ever witnessed a birth 
knows this is true. Life is messy. And this illusion that was given to us at some time that it's supposed to be easy or neat or clean or somehow is simply false. Living systems are messy, and that's why they thrive. I want you to remember that because that means the struggle for atzma'ut, for self-actualization, will always involve the absurdity of having some edge where you are or are not, and it's going to be a mess, but hopefully a productive one. So that's atzma'ut. The other word I'll give you is hashra'a. You know, yom atzma'ut is easy. That's the day of independence, of self-actualization. Yom Yerushalayim, I'm going to offer to you that I believe what we need to extract from it is this idea of hashra'a. Now, what is hashra'a? Hashra'a is also another word that you'd be hard-pressed to pin down in the Bible. Um, nonetheless, in religious language, we speak about, right, shu'at ha-shechinah, that, that, that God's presence comes to rest. We'll get to that when we talk about Yerushalayim. But for now, what do I mean when I use the word hashra'a? It's more. It's the aspirational. It's life. It's the power to touch the infinite. And by touching it and giving it form through your self-actualization, you're going to put down boundaries. You're going to make that perfect inspiration a little bit messy because it's real. But nonetheless, this is life flowing through. And therefore, it's always bigger than whatever vessel gives it form. Right? That's, I mean, can you point to life? Is the life that I'm feeling the same life that you're feeling, the same life that's flowing through these trees? We could have a philosophical discussion, but in the end of the day, I think on some level we all believe, yes, we're all alive, and it's not something different, which means there's something flowing through. Now, there's a big problem here of how you get outside of your own box. How do I actualize? If we're an independent people in our land after 2,000 years, how do we really receive that inspiration in a way in which isn't already something what we know? How do we get si- outside of our own boundaries? Right, there's a story they tell about the Chazan Ish and his brother, they had a Chavruta, can you imagine? Right? They had a Chavruta, and any time that they got to a problem that they couldn't understand in the Gemara, they would each pick up a book of Tehillim and go to their separate corners and daven for however long. And then they would come back together, and consistently they found that whatever the problem was, they had a different level of insight. And I give this to you as... as an example of inspiration. It's not a logical, analytical tool. It's not an attempt to use the forms and structures which you already have. It's an ability to open yourself to more. And prayer, of course, is the quintessential act of seeking inspiration. So here's a model that we might be able to use in this framework. What are the essential pieces of Yom Atzmut and Yom Yerushalayim? Well, I'm going to tell you Yom Atzmut is self-actualization. I'm going to tell you that Yom Yerushalayim is inspiration, hashra'a, right? And now that I've defined them, I want to think a little bit about, I mean, how has this come to be in our time? What do these days look like? Before I do, I do want to say one word about the relationship between the two, because atzmut needs hashra'a. Self-actualization needs inspiration. That's obvious because hashra'a is life itself. It's what makes our independence or any institution, family, or organism alive. It's not a dead end. But it's often missed that hashra'ah, the infinite, inspiration, needs atzma'ut. Because without atzma'ut, without self-actualization, there's no real expression in the world. Anybody here ever, ever had an inspiration? You can raise your hand if you want. An inspiration, something that, that, that really struck you and said, this is true, that's real, this must be. And you know, you can always tell what type of person one is or where I'm at in my life on what I do with that inspiration. Sometimes it's just a psh, wow moment. And sometimes I act. 
And more often than not, I can tell you as both a father and a teacher and, and, a, and an Eved Hashem, that our willingness to accept the fact that whatever we build inspired by what we've seen is not going to be perfect. It's going to be messy. It's going to have boundaries. See, our willingness to accept that and to say nonetheless, at least it can hold some of it, is the difference between acting and not. And that really, in the end of the day, if you want to know what I have to say, that's the relationship between Yom Asmut and Yom Yerushalayim. And now I'll explain. Um, oh, sorry. One more warning. One more warning. Because, you know, Atzma'ut, here we are. We have a country. Yom Yerushalayim, it's an inspiration. It's on the horizon. Great. Neat package. We're done, right? Except what happens then when we actually have Yerushalayim? You know, Yerushalayim is, is most commonly in the Book of Devarim called Makom Yibchar. The future tense, the, the place which God will choose. More than 20 times in the book of Devarim. The place God will choose, will choose, will choose. You get the sense that, that it's not a destination you want to actually arrive at. It's one you want to aspire to. You know, in, in uh, 1950, might have been 51, let me write down the exact date, there was a meeting of the Mapai Party, right? The predecessor to the Labor Party, um, who ruled the country with an iron fist. At that point, they were at the height of their power. They had a conference. Can you imagine a political conference today? around the question, has the Messiah already arrived? Right? The answer is, no, 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 Bibi left the building. I'm sorry, okay, no politics, I'm going to resist, but that was like a, there was a, it was a ringer. So at this conference, Gershom Shalom was there, Ben-Gurion was there, we're talking about major thinkers in the Zionist movement. Ben-Gurion got up, and he, if you know anything about his sleeping style, slammed on the table, and he declared to everyone, if you can find his name in the, mo- in the phone book, he's no longer the Messiah. Meaning, the Messiah is a dream which must recede. It must be on the horizon. Because inspiration has to inspire actualization. They can't become the same thing. And if, by the way, if you read the Tanakh, you can see that the actuality of Yerushalayim and the reality of the Migdash poses many problems that they solve. And for someone like myself, who does indeed long for the rebuilding, it's a question that deserves contemplation. So, okay, I want to look a little bit at the past and presence of these two days, Yom Asmut and Yom Yushalayim, and try to extract a little bit of a lesson and perhaps some inspiration for the future. So, Yom Asmut, I think, is easier. In 1948, the spirit of 48 was quite clear, right? Number one, we made it. We made it, and that should never be dismissed, and we're fortunate to still live in a time in which people even alive today can tell us that story, something which those of us who are American, you know, when you go back and you speak to people about the 4th of July, it's a tough sell. But even more than simply we made it, the spirit of 48 is we made it, but it remains in question. It wasn't a certainty in 1948 or frankly through the 50s if you know the history, right? You know, tripling the population, the, the, the era of Sen, of, of tremendous economic struggle, the wars in 48, 56, and those are just the big wars. You know, This was life in its tenuous and sometimes desperate nature. And I would say that a recognition of the tenuous nature of victory is essential for a healthy life. Why? Because it lends a vital edge to the struggle that we all have to express life on the personal level, on the national level. Now, that can be desperate. But it can also be exuberant, right? It's good to be alive when you know what the alternative tastes like. When you don't know what the alternative tastes like, life can get somewhat dull, right? Now, we're very fortunate to have exuberant life today. I mean, look where we are. And and if you look at the way in which 
Yom Ha'atzmut is celebrated in the Chavar Yisraelit. That's really what it's about, the national barbecue. Tulim Ba'aretz, right? We're, we're, we're looking around the land. Life be easy, right? It's good life, and I'm not complaining, trust me. I was out there with the best of them, right? But Ben-Gurion knew that Atzma'ut requires, to some degree, a pioneering spirit. You cannot settle. Real life evolves. To stagnate is to die. Now, on one hand, you don't want to reinvent the wheel in every generation. I mean, we do have wisdom, and I'm quite proud of much of what we've built. But on the other hand, you never forget one of the most important lessons that Arnold Toynbee, no great lover of the Jews, but a fantastic thinker about history, offers in his approach to history. He says that yesterday's solutions in history are often tomorrow's problems. And he specifically points out that in societies, and it's quite easy in ours to see it, problems are usually solved by what he calls a creative minority. So a group of people who are motivated either by ideology or wisdom or, or what have you, and they engage, and then they offer solutions, ideas, and society coalesces around them, and Baruch Hashem, the Zionist movement, did the impossible, literally did the impossible. What's the challenge is that the creative minority, once it succeeds, it becomes a controlling minority. And rather than attempting to engage the oncoming problems with the same level of creativity and passion and self-sacrifice, they proceed to defend their idea. This may sound familiar if you read the news. So in that sense, there needs to be a constant sense of pioneering. That life means breaking vessels. Real self-actualization means, great, I'm here now, what's next? And until the day I die, or until the day Mashiach comes and has a number in the phone book, that process will not cease. Um, I do want to add one thought. Nope, we're going to skip it. Okay, so... That was my inner conversation. I like to let people in on that. So Yom Atzimut, self-actualization with its problems and that need for the pioneering spirit. What about Yom Yerushalayim, the spirit of 67? Well, if Yom Atzimut, if the spirit of 48 was, we got it, but it's still a little bit tenuous, then the spirit of 67, I'd say, in its essence was, did that really just happen? Anyway, I, I hope you guys have read Yosef Klein Levy's book, or like, as dream, We Were Like Dreamers. Fantastic book. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. But I'm sure many people here, perhaps, lived through the experience as we spoke about briefly or, or have some attention. There was a dreamlike quality. And the one thing is important is that in the immediate aftermath, everyone agreed that a miracle had happened. Even if they weren't willing to use the outright language of miracle, I'll give you as an example the speech that Chief of Staff Yitzhak Rabin gave upon receiving an honorary doctorate on Hartsofim, which of course had been liberated in the war, a matter of weeks after the combat. And he speaks, and it's a whole long speech, I won't drag you through the whole thing, but he speaks about how this war in particular brought forth a rare and magnificent instance of heroism and courage, together with expressions of brotherhood, etc. But here's the key, it all starts and ends with the spirit, he says. Our soldiers prevailed not by their weapons, but by their awareness of their supreme mission, by their awareness of the righteousness of their cause, deep love for their homeland, and by their recognition of the difficult task laid upon them to ensure the existence of our people in our homeland. Now, on one hand, there's supreme mission. Begins and ends with the spirit. Righteousness of their cause. But what was the cause in his eyes? Existence in our homeland. There's a big problem there. Because in 1967, that, that existence, you know, all the challenges of history aside, was more or less assured. Or at the very least, 
that desperation, which like I pointed out to you, could be also exuberance, kind of uh, went out of the situation. If you know a bit about the history, it was almost an intoxicating sense of expansiveness, of power. Right? This was a whole new way of being, which frankly, we as a people were not ready. And with it went that clarity of what that moment meant. The miraculous is shockingly easy to take for granted. All I need to do to prove that to you is to point out that in the book of Shemot, immediately on the heels of the crossing of the Red Sea comes Amalek. You guys familiar with the story, right? And what's the question that precedes their appearance? Is God in our midst or not? What kind of question is that? Ten plagues, splitting of the Red Sea, they're following a pillar of fire by night and cloud by day. And they're asking, where's God? You don't need proof more than that, that the miraculous becomes commonplace like that. So what happens? Well, you know, in a sense, a controversy emerged around the meaning of this victory. People are familiar with Nathan Altman, great poet of the 50s and 60s, also creative inspiration of the movement for the the greater land of Israel. Many people are unaware that he shifted from a sort of hardcore Ben-Gurion Mapai stance to what today would be considered quite an extreme right-wing view. But he speaks, he says, the victory is not about returning Jews, not only about returning Jews to their nation's ancient exalted possessions. More than anything else, this victory has erased the division between the state of Israel and the land of Israel. Right? There's an expansion of the vessel. And he understood in all of his writings that he published subsequently that when you're, when you're your vessel expands, when that self-actualization hits a whole new level, then there's a new idea which must inspire it. But what followed quickly on 67 from a social historical standpoint was 73, right? And you know, that took the wind out of a lot of sails. The intoxication of 67 wasn't just drained, many people blamed the intoxication of 67 for the failure of 1973. Frankly, it's, it's not an unfair argument. There are, in my opinion, 67 Jews and 73 Jews, the modern war versus the postmodern war. If you're interested, that's where I'm at in the podcast right now. I'm in the, the thick of the uh, battle for the Chinese farm. If you're familiar with the history of 1973, you can look it up. For now, what I'll, do, what I'll tell you this is that Rebbe Nachman teaches that you have to be wary. Anytime you have a profound spiritual experience, it expands your kalim, he says, right? Your, your atzmaut, yourself, is bigger. And you know what happens? What happens when you have an intense experience? Your capacity expands, but then that experience fades. You know what you're left with? A bunch of empty space. And you feel empty. And he points out that depression, which he himself famously struggled with, often follows on the heels of profound spiritual experience unless we work to fill that new capacity with a deeper inspiration. And that, of course, is why I want to talk about Yom Yerushalayim. Because I'm quite concerned. Yom Asmud, we could say, is in danger of becoming a national barbecue. Right? And, and what will follow quickly on the heels of that, as we already see, is regret. Maybe it was a bad idea in the first place, God forbid. But I don't know how familiar you are with those voices in the Jewish world, but they're out there saying we would have been better off without it. Right? And Rav Cook, in a fantastic passage in, 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 in Orot HaTzichyan, the, the Lights of the Resurrection, which I'll just read you the key line, he says, when there's no aim to the power of life, it simply runs out. It might, it, it's might waning as it atrophies along the slow march 
toward dissipation, which awaits it at the bottom of its descent. Right? If Yom Ha'atzmut doesn't have Yom Yerushalayim, then we can build and be strong of a Mushumma. For what? What are we working so hard for? To live a, an easier life? A better life? Then the real challenges that we face and the real moral questions which underlie our existence will weigh us down and we will peter out. But fortunately, God gave us Yom Yerushalayim. And the question is, what do we do with it? Now today, Yom Yerushalayim, I'm sure you know, is the province of two things, of two groups. The national religious world and the city itself. I mean, it's called Yom Yerushalayim. We can't avoid that. And, uh, and what is the primary way in which it's marked? Halel v'hoda'ah. Halel v'hoda'ah, right? Give thanks, give praise, halel, songs, etc. Um, and I think it's, it's a fitting expression. Halel it comes from the word whose roots means to give light. You know, and, and, and um, you know, I don't want to scare anybody with physics, but, you know, light happens when you excite electrons and then they fall back to place, right? Meaning that excitation that Yom Hatzmut in particular represents is just a giving of light. But what's hoda'ah? Well, part of it is gratitude, and, and certainly gratitude is a, not just always in place, but particularly in place, like I pointed out. Something you pray for for 2,000 years and you finally get it deserves some attention. But on a deeper level, hoda'ah isn't just to be mode ani, I'm grateful, but it's also to be mode in the sense of acknowledgement. There's a recognition embedded in hoda'ah, a gratitude toward, toward something larger, toward not just inspiration, but the source of inspiration itself. Now, of course, Yom Yerushalayim is also shawi b'machloket. There's all kinds of controversy, and that doesn't just belong to the national religious world, though Jews, it unfortunately belongs to the whole world, right? It's all about shrinking the story. People want to shrink the story. I can tell you as a student of history, right, if you follow the arc of the literature about the battles in 1967, they go from, there's no explanation for this, it's downright miraculous. If I read you the whole Rabin speech, he literally says in his speech, military experts have no explanation for how we won this war, talks about the Air Force, etc. Today, trust me, you can find a list of military experts who explain to you exactly why, really, Israel was actually Goliath in the war, sorry, and, and the Arabs were David, and it's all a myth, we were stronger all along, etc., etc., etc. They want to shrink the story, remove the miraculous, and all the inspiration that comes with it. For, unfortunately, very specific reasons. But let's remember, of course, that controversy is not intrinsically bad. We're a people of machloket. We believe in machloket l'shem shemaim. You know what the difference between machloket l'shem shemaim and machloket she'en l'shem shemaim is? Right? There's a shemaim that we share. Right? Something bigger than you or I. The, the, the shoresh, the three-letter root of the word machloket, is what? Chelek. It's an argument based on the assumption that I can only see part of the picture. And you can see a different part of the picture. Machloket l'shem shemaim means we agree there's a picture, we call it shemaim. And I need you to disagree with me. Because if you disagree with me, we're coming closer to the wholeness. That's what Yerushalayim can offer. Because for us, the Shemaim, the inspiration which unites all the perspectives, potentially, of Am Yisrael and really of the world. Right? Yerushalayim is meant to be the center of the world. Right? That's Yerushalayim. But we have to find a way in which we can tell that story. Not in a narrow fashion that speaks to our particular perspective, but in an inspirational fa fashion that allows people to open themselves 
So the grandeur really of what Yerushalayim represents. Now, many people feel a sense of crisis within our society. And it could be that that crisis is a reflection. No, it's, I would say, it, along with the Shefa, it's a strange thing. It's like, <clears throat> we haven't had a government-passed electoral process for two years, and yet the country's doing pretty well when you compare it to a lot of places in the world. I mean, aside from the fact that it somewhat conclusively proves to be irrelevant to politics, right, it, it makes you realize how robust the world which we've built is. But it also begs the question, it might just be that the structures which were built in 1948, the atzma'ut, that self-actualization, should have been shattered and rebuilt in 67, like Nathan Altman said. In his eyes, it was a, a dropping of the division between the state of Israel and the land of Israel. Fine, that's not the only way to look. I would say, by the way, I'll make a plug, that especially because I think there might be some American Jews in the audience, that, that a constitution which represents a real social contract that, that allows a whole society to work together is a... Is a we, we could use it a lot, and I think that American Jews in particular could play a special role, but it doesn't matter to me so much what it is. What I want you to understand is the relationship, because we haven't missed the boat. All those voices out there saying, we missed it, 67 was a chance, we didn't build the temple, we didn't take over the country, we didn't... Nonsense. What? We didn't come home. Yep. Listen, it is true, both in a person's life, and in history that you can miss, a, miss the boat. I'm not denying that. But I want to use Hanukkah again as an example, and we'll wrap up with this, that, you know, <clears throat> we all know the story of Hanukkah. I'm not going to drag you through it. Maybe you can uh, tune in for the Hanukkah share when the time comes. But it's important to note that until the crisis of Herodian kingdom, Hanukkah as a national holiday was, was poorly attended. And the evidence is pretty clear from Josephus that, that it was really when the Hasmoneans began to represent the ideal of liberty and independence. When you look in Josephus, the story of the Pachnes Pach Hashem, of the, of the oil, isn't there. He knows it's a holiday called Lights, and he knows it's about liberty. But that's 150-plus years after the Hanukkah story. right? Because there's a, like I told you at the beginning, there's a process of historical evolution. There's a spiritual task which not just the leadership, but the people can take on to extract the infinite, the eternal, the inspired from the specific events of history. And we are in the thick of that process now. We're far from done, but I'll tell you this. The tool which, which the religion, national religious community has chosen is at our disposal, the tool of hoda'a. Not just gratitude, but acknowledgement. What is the source of our inspiration? And, and that's really, in my eyes, the task that lies ahead. That, that we have to think about what's the hashra'a, what's the inspiration and the touching of the infinite we became capable of as a people in 67 and that we are capable of now that we're just not building the kaling, building the vessels to receive. And we have to also have a little bit of amuna, just a little bit of faith that God doesn't hold back. And therefore, the world in which we live and our capacity to self-actualize really simply depends on a determination to receive what it is that's coming into the world and to build something new with it. So once again, I want to thank Philip and Judy for having me here. I want to thank you all for your attention. I want to bless us all that we should merit to celebrate Yom HaAtzimut in real joy and Yom Yerushalayim in inspiration and Shivana Bimhera Bi'amenu. Questions?
Sure. Maybe I'm naive, but in all shareholders, I'm not really naive, but you tell me what, what shareholders think. So, so yes, it's true. We all tend to hear, when we, we live amongst the people we love and, and share opinions with. I happen in teaching in a more, uh, we'll call it progressive left-wing world, um, the, the pain around the consequences and the messiness of life, either vis-a-vis -vis the Arabs of this land, or vis-a-vis -vis the way the nations of the world look us, or vis-a-vis, -vis, by the way, the very real moral and spiritual challenges of being an actual people in the land with army and economy, and et cetera. A lot of people, be they American Jews or <clears throat> some of the sort of more extreme left here, it's, it's less common amongst Israelis, are basically saying perhaps that this is corrupting what Judaism is and we would be better in exile. It is, it is a hard to believe, I know, but um, if you want to understand a good portion of where American Jewry is going, you can, you, can, you can trust me to say that it's a small but very vocal crowd. Also on the religious right, very true, the post-Zionist religious right is, is growing. That's an excellent point. Other questions or comments before we wrap it up and then we're going to have Marius? Yes, please. Uh-huh. Yes. No, I, I agree with you. It, it, there is a concerted effort by people who care to extract the, the, the eternally meaningful. And, and I, I take that as a tremendously positive sign. I didn't come here for doom and gloom. I came here for, for a call to action. Right? And, and um, I personally, I worry about American Jewry. I'm not so worried about what's happening here. I think that it's, it's a rough process. It's a messy process. But the amount of life here is just so overwhelming. And, and signs like you're speaking about are so positive that um, I, I see a very bright future. I thought you were just scratching. Anything else? Other comments, questions? Well, once again, thank you, and Yom Yerushalayim Sameach.